today I have that wonderful task to talk about a topic that usually isn't covered too much from pulpits, and it's the topic of marriage. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to talk about marriage, and honestly, every time I hear the word marriage, because of my mind and the way it thinks, my mind goes to the Princess Bride movie, a 1987 American fantasy adventure uh, comedy film. How many have never seen The Princess Bride? Wow. You serious? Raise your hands again. Raise your hands. Let's go. Okay. So, okay. Well, there's a line in the movie about marriage, and every time I hear the word marriage, my mind goes to this video clip. You can even buy shirts from Amazon with marriage on it, uh, but that's how I always started out. I was teasing Andrew before he got married. I was going to use some of these words, marriage. Marriage is the reason. So go ahead and roll the, roll the video clip. So it's a short one. Turn it up nice and loud. Okay, so my interpretation of that, how many have never seen that? By the way, you haven't, and some of you haven't. Uh, using, in the words of the clergyman, marriage. Marriage is what wings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, and love, true love, will follow you wherever. So treasure your love. All right. That's the best I can do. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to talk about marriage, marriage, marriage today. You're going to be saying it. I know you are. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And all the men said, Amen. In the same way, the husband's body does not bring or does not belong to him but alone, but to his wife, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, whereas I am, but each man has his own gift from God, and one has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the, and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I am. 
But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I'm going to pause right there. And Lord willing, in two weeks, when I'm back on the 27th, we'll finish out 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the last part of that chapter. But today we're looking at the first 16 verses. And really after Paul spends the last two chapters, 5 and 6, talking about the church going wild and the problems they faced, uh, talking about sexual propriety or impropriety for those whose moral choices do not reflect biblical boundaries. In this chapter, Paul addresses sexual propriety from a different direction, really in the context of of marriage. And he addresses those whose views are unreasonably and unbiblically strict. That's why he begins in verse 1 says, he's saying, now for the matters you wrote about. In other words, Paul and the Corinthian church had already exchanged some correspondence in the past. Now those letters are lost to us today. We don't have record of them, but we get a hint of the context of what they were talking about. And one of the topics that came up was this topic on marriage. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man, for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That is the English Standard Version. The NIV says it's good for a man not to marry. The King James Bible actually gets this one most accurately. Now concerning the things thereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. We talked about that in Leviticus 18, 19, two weeks ago. Now the original Greek language here really doesn't refer to marriage. The literal phrase is what the King James says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now Paul is simply quoting what scholars say was a common Corinthian saying. He did this in the previous chapters. You know, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. You know, food is for the stomach, that kind of thing. And then he gives his commentary on that topic. Well, that's what Paul's about to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He quotes the saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he spends the next several verses in 1 Corinthians 7 saying, yeah, that is partially true, but not completely true. In other words, Paul is simply saying there's some context to this. 
You know, keeping it all together. And, and then Paul talks about the specific boundaries, the attitudes, the guidelines within the marriage relationship for intimacy. Now, we're going to look at those guidelines a little bit, but there is actually a bigger picture about the marital relationship to be found in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7. And today we're going to focus more on the bigger picture of things because Paul's advice here not only can work wonders for your marriage, but for all of your relationships as well. And as I've mentioned in previous messages and throughout this series from 1 Corinthians, good news for the not so good, uh, our objectives really take the words that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, words that you know, he intended to address you know, their unique set of circumstances, what was going on in the church in Corinth there, but really what does God want us to learn from these words that we can apply to our lives today? Now, some read these words in 1 Corinthians and say, well, I don't think Paul had a very you know, high opinion of marriage. Uh, that's not accurate though his words do reflect somewhat the common cultural attitude toward marriage during his time. Now today, we think of marriage as finding one's soulmate, falling in love, you know, two hearts intertwined, and so on and so forth. We hear lines like, if I could reach up and hold a star for every time you've made me smile, the entire evening would be in the palm of my hand. Isn't that romantic? Isn't that corny? See, I know those things because I'm an expert because we have watched every Hallmark movie that you can imagine on dating and relationships. When I say that, I say I'm safe to watch today Hallmark movies uh, pre-2020 before Hallmark went woke and then GAC, Great American Christmas, country, whatever time of the year it is, uh, they have now taken over some of these corny movies and a lot of the actors and actresses have moved from Hallmark because of their woke agenda over to GAC. Now, here is the plot, though, of nearly every Hallmark Christmas movie in a nutshell. She runs a small business, could be a florist, a bakery, a catering company, perhaps a restaurant, which there seems to be abundance in small-town America. That is threatened by an evil corporate takeover. Hallmark films come with a surprisingly anti-capitalist message to begin with. The villain of the piece is inevitably a soulless corporate or a land developer, usually male, who has set his malicious sights on the struggling enterprise and she doesn't have the financial means to fight him. But she will deliver an emotional monologue about why her business means so much to the community and work out a way to make her business flourish, i.e. bring in profits, because who are we kidding? Capitalism works. Now, we also know from Hallmark movies that she's always, to begin with, with the wrong guy. He's a jerk to the waiter or waitress. He doesn't show up to things or is very late when he does show up. He's constantly on his phone talking while she's trying to engage in conversation. And he probably, the horror of it, probably works in finance. And in the most sinister twist, it turns out he was a part of the corporate takeover all along. Sigh, you know, men, am I right? Uh, and and, the, and their thing is, 
that she doesn't see at first, but the right guy was there all along, maybe a more than likely a high school sweetheart or an old boyfriend. I mean, after all, Christmas can be a tough time of the year, but don't worry, the main characters will rediscover their love for the season and for each other and have their house tinsel covered and twinkling with white snow covering the green leaf trees before the credits roll. Am I right or wrong about the Hallmark storyline? To sum it up another way, guy or gal who left home several years ago and is very successful at some highfalutin job in the city, the big city, somewhere comes back to small town USA for a Thanksgiving meal with the family or perhaps for a funeral. Oh no, their family business is failing. What? They need to stay longer, maybe till Christmas. I can't believe it. What are the chances of that? successful and attractive returning guy or gal runs into the sister or brother of a friend they knew in high school. He or she was just a kid back then, but now, hey, they're all grown up. Now they blossom into a hottie or a uh, handsome hunk, you know. And at first they may not like each other. Matter of fact, there's a lot of tension, but everyone can see the obvious chemistry but them, despite the fact that they annoy each other at first and they have to work together to save the business, the ranch, or whatever. Of course, it all inevitably leads to a playful snowball fight between the two in the town square or making snow angels almost every movie and they both realize that they do like each other and at the end of the movie, they finally kiss. That is pretty much then the plot of every Hallmark Christmas movie. You're welcome. I just saved you the trouble of watching every single Hallmark movie this year. But you know what? Many of you are going to watch them anyway. Yes, all right? They're corny or whatever. It is as inevitable as that moment when the returning hometown hero says, you know, this is where I wanted to be all along as they hug their new love and gaze at the Christmas tree, cue Christmas music, and fade out to the credits. One of the things that's always bothered me, even to this day, is when they film these movies. But if you look hard, you will find snow on leaves on a tree because they filmed it in the summer months. And, and they try to put this fake snow wherever. But if you look at the background, I always look at the trees. If there's snow on the leaves, fake, 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 you know, whatever. So let's talk about marriage. Marriage. In the Greco-Roman world, marriage was seen more as a transaction and a matter of functional convenience. Now, Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 7 on the surface may seem to reflect that attitude here. But let's remember that, that what Paul wrote about marriage in 1 Corinthians is not everything Paul said about this topic on marriage. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, I think it's uh, verses 22 through 33, someplace in there, Paul compares marriage to our relationship with Christ. And really, Paul saw marriage as a sacred relationship, not as a mere transaction. At the same time, being of a practical nature, Paul knew that, the, that following the early... Uh, the, the, the guidelines within the marriage would, would really uh, speak to everybody and it would bene benefit everybody involved. In other words, Paul speaking this topic, he was hoping to strengthen marriages and strengthen a person's relationship with Jesus Christ. 
He also, Paul also needed to address this topic because as we have seen earlier, there were a number of factions or divisions in the church in Corinth and, and, and Paul was trying to cover every angle that he could as he was talking to them, writing to them about some of the issues they were facing. Uh, some of the problems he dealt with were about legalism. Some were about liberty. We've covered a lot of different things up to this point. But, but it looks like those on the legalism side came up with some unreasonably strict rules about sex and marriage. Not only did they teach that sex outside of marriage was a sin, which of course is a biblical perspective, they also taught that even within marriage, this is where I totally disagree, All right, but even within marriage, they were saying it was better to abstain from all intimacy. Now, where'd they get that idea? I can guarantee you, not the word of God. I will say this, and I'll move on. I know there's kids here as well, but I believe that Christians, born-again Christians, ought to have the best intimate life uh, that, that's, that's out there, uh, all right? Uh, so there were married couples who had abandoned really the essential element of the marital union, and it was creating conflict or putting undue stress on one partner or the other. There were also, as scholars tell us, couples who had chosen to be committed to one another, but not fully married and not intimate. Instead, they lived celibate lives together. How boring. Even in the same household, even sleeping in the same bed, they determined to deny the desires of the flesh for their greater spiritual good. That was their mindset. Now, Paul suggests to those that, that aren't married that it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, as far as permanently abstaining from all intimacy within the marriage relationship, Paul says, not a good idea. All right, not a good idea. Now, many in the church, even in their culture, tended to gravitate toward one of the two extremes. As we saw last Sunday, there were those who said, you know, what you do with your body doesn't matter. That it doesn't change who you are because it's your soul, your inner self that matters the most. And therefore, you can pursue all manner of pleasure because your body is nothing. On the flip side of that then, the other extreme was, uh, that's right, your soul, your spirit, your inner self is what matters most. Your body is nothing, so it shouldn't be denied of anything. It, 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 ought, it ought to enjoy every comfort there is and every pleasure there is. Now, this is why there were certain people who would eat a starvation-level diet and would even sleep standing up because, in their opinion... In order to be truly spiritual, you must deny your body everything it wants. I, for one, am not going to sleep standing up. I prefer my bed, number one, or my recliner, number two. All right? And so Paul says, in effect, that in marriage, those kind of extreme views don't work. He said the husband and wife should tend to one another's needs and not deny each other unless by mutual agreement they spend some time apart in order to devote themselves more fully to prayer for a season. Then within a reasonable time, he says they should resume their intimate relationship. Now, the remainder of this message could be about intimacy in marriage 
all the do's and don'ts because the guidelines in 1 Corinthians 7 are very clear. In fact, I would recommend that any married couple today who is looking for direction and guidelines in this area that you would study this text together and take Paul's advice to heart. And since there are boys and girls present on this Family Communion Sunday, I will keep this message on a G rating, not even PG. All right. And so today, what I want us to see in this passage are some big picture guidelines, big picture guidelines for married people that go far beyond the rules of the bedroom. These are guidelines that will work in every aspect of the marital relationship and will certainly strengthen every aspect of of, of marital uh, relationships. In fact, even if you're not married, even if you're only dating, or maybe you are considering dating, or maybe you might consider dating, these big picture ideas, these guidelines will strengthen your dating relationship as well. And even in other types of relationships, these guidelines can be applied in such a way as to strengthen your connections with your family, with your friends, with your co-workers, with others. But mainly, I am talking today about how husbands and wives can relate to one another. And so here are three guidelines. Number one, make it your priority to look after the needs of others. Make it your priorities, husbands and wives, to look after the needs of your spouse. See, Paul is talking in these verses about the intimate relationship that exists between a husband and a wife. And he says in verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. A note in the complete, uh, the full life study Bible, the fire Bible, it says the commitment of marriage means that each partner relinquishes the exclusive right to his or her own body and gives the other claim to it. Such desires within marriage are natural and God-given, and to refuse to carry out one's responsibility in fulfilling the other's needs is to open up the marriage to Satan's temptation of adultery. That was a notation in the Full Life Study Bible, the Fire Bible. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now, of course, This would have been the prevailing attitude in Corinth in their non-Christian culture because women, for the most part, back then, women were considered possessions and men considered themselves to be the king of the castle. But then Paul kind of changes things out a little bit. He turns the tables in verse 4 and he says, In the same way, husbands... The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. In other words, the husband and the wife have some authority over each other. In other words, there is to be a mutual surrender being involved here. Now, in the context in which Paul wrote these words, it was quite a foreign concept that a woman would have the same rights in marriage as a man. And yet, Paul puts them on equal ground. Yes, in Ephesians 5, you know, wives submit to your husbands. You know, as as the church is submitted to Christ, husbands love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. He laid down his life 
for the church. And so between 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians 5, we have a pretty good picture of that idea of surrendering our lives, not for ourselves, not for the good of ourselves, but for somebody else. And so Paul is, is simply saying here that this guideline, this principle can be applied and should be applied, yes, in marriage, but really it's a principle that we should be living in life. Friends, life is not about you. Period. Period. It's about God and it's about others. And so in fact, it should be applied to every aspect of the marriage And think of it this way, the husband's attitude should be, it's my job as your husband to look after you and your needs. It's my job as a husband, all of them. That means when you need a hand to hold, I'll give you mine. When you need to pour out your heart about any problem that you're having without being cut off mid-sentence, to be told the obvious solution, that's very easy for me to see, but not for you. To be told uh, whatever's going on maybe in her life, where she just needs to sit down and talk it out without me being on my phone, without me having the remote control in my hand, watching my t- favorite TV show, and, and without me just going like, huh, but me listening to what she has to say. That's what I'm trying to get at here. I'm your guy. You know, when you need a shoulder massage that's really just a shoulder massage because you're that stressed and are that tired, I'm, I'm happy to oblige. When you want to go, go clothes shopping but don't want to go alone, I'll go along. And I promise not to pout, not to sigh out loud, and not to keep asking you, well, how much does that cost? You see, every aspect of the marriage needs to be approached with a you-first mindset. You-first mindset. I think right there, that would solve a lot of marital conflict. I've said before, I say again, Ephesians 5, that wives have no problem surrendering or submitting to the leadership of their husband if the husband is surrendered to the leadership of Christ. Amen. Amen. Whoever said that, amen. True. It's true. Wives, wives would love to submit or surrender to a husband whose husband's going after Jesus. That's what I'm getting at here. That's what the word, the word says. Galatians 5.13, serve one another in love. Now, Paul was talking to all believers there, But if his words in Galatians 5.13 applies to friendships, friends, it more than double applies then to your marriage. We in the marriage relationship need to learn to serve each other and to meet each other's needs. Bible. Now, obviously, this works out when the arrangement is reciprocal and both are committed to it. Hopefully, hopefully that will happen in your marriage if you're married. Now, I'm challenging you. You say, well, my husband or my wife would never do that. Well, how about you begin by doing it? You know, you, you, you set the standard for the, the you-firstness in your relationship. And if your marriage lacks this quality, you be the one to get it started. And I will go out on a limb here and say that couples who have the highest level of complicity in their intimate life 
are the couples who follow this you first guideline in every area of their relationship. Why? Because to them, even the intimacy part, listen to me, even the intimacy part is not about themselves being pleased, but their thoughts are on how can I please my spouse. If you'll have that as a mindset, I mean, God's, God's in the mix of all that. And so what am I saying? I'm simply saying, look for ways in your marriage, husbands and wives, look for ways to say you first to your spouse. Make it your priority to look after the needs of your spouse. Make it your priority to live your life with an attitude that says, life is not about me, it's about God, it's about you, and it's about others. Now, one of the hardest truths of life is that our life is not about us. Neither are we the most important thing or person in the world. Rather, we exist for the glory of God and to be part of His kingdom, and His kingdom reigns and rules, and so we exist for the sake of others. Just a word of revelation. Uh, Your life is not about you. It's about God. It's about others. And so everyone repeat this with me. Their needs, not my needs. Say it again out loud. Their needs, not my needs. All right, guideline number one. Number two, remember the importance of me time. Now, this may sound like just the opposite of what I just said, but follow me. Paul says, verse 5, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, Paul is talking here about the couple's intimate life, but I believe this guideline also really covers the whole relationship. In other words, Husbands, wives, there needs to be a time every now and then when you give your spouse a little space or you take a little time for yourself and you focus your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, this gives you opportunity to think about your personal relationship with God, your personal walk with Christ, your commitment to personal holiness. It gives you opportunity to think through your priorities and evaluate your progress. In other words, you should make the effort to get in some time alone with God time as often as you need it. Now, not to the extent that you ignore your spouse and family, but to the extent that you become a greater blessing to them because you've been with him. And once again, I can guarantee you, if you'll spend time with him, then your time with them will be much better. And this good stuff? Taking me time is important, but even more important, perhaps, is that you help your spouse find the time, take the time, and that, you know, to be refueled, to be recharged, you know, spiritually, those kind of things. It could be simply as saying this, you know, I'll make sure that no one bothers you for the next four hours, six hours, or whatever, so you have time to be with God, to be in His Word, time to pray or whatever, time to unwind, and when you're done, I'll take you out to dinner. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I receive that. <laughs> Or it could mean bless, giving your blessing 
uh, for your spouse to spend a day or two alone. Uh, I read this. A woman recently attended the woman's retreat in her church, but she couldn't enjoy herself because her husband, a church staff member, wouldn't quit calling her. Men don't do that. When they're at a woman's retreat or at a woman's breakfast or whatever, man, just let them be, let them go, let God go, and, and you'll be better for it, and so will thee. But don't be like that person. Honey, what about this? What about that? And, and uh, guilty as charged at times, all right? Uh, not only do you need to take some time for yourself to, to focus on your spiritual priorities, but you need to give your spouse the, the gift of guilt-free time alone. And we all need that. We all need that. Number two, here is the final principle. Number three, uh, commit to finding a way to make it work. Commit to finding a way to make it work. A divorced man told his pastor that every day of his life, he asked himself, what would have happened if he just tried a little harder and stayed just a little longer? Now, his marriage had lots of problems. He had biblical grounds for divorce, but that has proved to be of little comfort because now he asks himself every day, what if I tried a little harder and what if I stayed a little longer? Paul says this in verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, verse 11, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. But then in 12 and 13, Paul goes on to say, if a man is married to a non-believing wife or a woman is married to a non-believing man and the non-believer is willing to stay in the marriage, then you should stay in the marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 and 13. But then 14, he says something interesting. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband. And the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife. And the children are made holy. Now, what is Paul getting at there? Now, Paul is not saying that the unbeliever is now saved and the children are now saved and none of them need to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior by repentance. He's not using sanctification in that sense. He is saying that the unbelieving spouse will benefit and the entire family will benefit from the spiritual influence of the believing spouse. Now, a word this morning to those who are here who are married to an unbeliever. Never, ever underestimate your spiritual influence on your unbelieving husband or your unbelieving wife or your kids. You have, wife, husband, you have a sanctifying influence on your spouse and children. Never, ever underestimate that. Once again, this did not mean that each member of the family automatically had a personal relationship of salvation, a salvation experience with Jesus Christ. That remained in the domain of personal choice. They still have to choose whether or not they are going to become a follower of Christ. But it did mean that a holy influence was brought to bear 
on the members of the family, and they enjoyed some of the blessings of a Christian presence in your home, brought to you, or brought to them by you. In other words, you're living out what it means to be a follower of Christ. And, and, and guess what? They, they see it. They see it. They know it. Now, too many times when a spouse wants to talk about the difficulties in their marriage, the response they get is something along the lines of, well, that's a you problem, not a me problem. Deal with it because I'm not changing. In marriage, there are no you problems or me problems. It's all a we we problem, W-E. A family can't thrive if one of the partners is perpetually running on empty. And so your job in your marriage is to tend to the needs of the other as best as you can and to make every effort to work out each difficult situation as best as you can. Now back in 800 B.C., the Greek poet Homer said, and I quote, There is nothing more noble or admirable than when two people who see eye to eye keep house as man and wife, confounding their enemies and delighting their friends. In the almost 3,000 years since Homer lived, not much has changed. You see, being happily married remains today as noteworthy as ever. Paul brings this section to a close by saying in verse 15, and I bring this to a close with these words, God has called us to live in peace. These words echo what Paul wrote the church in Rome, Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, this is to be a top priority for all of us and all we do. Now, if Paul's words apply to our relationships with one another in the church, they doubly apply for our relationships at home. In other words, let's make, a peace, let's, let's make peace in our, in our marriages, in our families. Let's make peace a priority. Challenge yourself today to be the one that will say, you know, I will not be the reason there is unresolved conflict in my family. We're going to work things out. We're working toward peace. And then say, I will be the one that will meet your needs first. Because life's not about me. It's about God, and it's about you, and it's about others. And I will make every effort to live in peace. So together, we can confound the critics, and we can delight our friends, and that we can bring glory to God in this marriage where we have placed him above all else. Marriage is work. It's hard at times. Paul gives us some guidelines. 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, he laid down his life for his future bride. Wives, love your husbands, submit to them. Respect, respect them. You see, God has placed before us a mandate that husbands and wives, and Paul says in Ephesians 5, behold, I show you a mystery, a mystery of Christ in the church. 
Well, friends, when it comes down to it, God wants us, me and you, to surrender, to yield, to submit our lives to him. And when that happens, it's much easier than to submit to one another. Amen? I'm going to ask you to stand this morning, and I want to pray blessing on marriages today. I don't want to call anybody forward in the sense of, I'm here to embarrass you, and your marriage is having problems, and let's pray for you, and you know, whatever. I'm just here to speak blessing over your life, over your family, over your marriage, over your relationship, and hopefully you'll take to heart these words. Guess what? I, I kid Jill about this all the time. Like, that's mine. That's, that's mine. That's, you know, we, we joke around that a little bit. But we, we've been married 39 years. Haven't all been easy, but I'd do it all over again. It's been wonderful. And I know that the divorce rate is high in this country as well as around the world. But I believe that Christians can set the pace here. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the words that you gave to the Apostle Paul to share with us, not just the church in Corinth to learn from, to, to see what, what he was dealing with there, but, but for our lives as well. And Father, today I speak blessing over every husband, over every wife, over every marriage. For what you have joined together, may man not tear apart. Father, I pray that the marriages represented in this church would thrive not just survive, but thrive. And God, that your blessing would rest upon husbands and wives who would yield to the other, who would surrender or submit to the other, just as we are sum, uh, submitted or surrender to you. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would bring healing to broken, severed relationships even today. And God, that, that couples, that married couples would walk out of this place kind of with their head held high saying, God, we're going to do things your way not my way or not her way. God, we're going to do things your way. And I pray, God, for this to be the attitude in the hearts and lives of husbands, of wives, of children as well. I speak blessing over families. God, when everything else in this world is coming against the family and against marriages, God, I pray that a standard would be raised saying, this is the word of God. This is the direction of God for marriages, for husbands and wives. Lord, help all of us to say to our spouse, it's not about me, it's about you. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve my family. And Lord, then also that alone time that we all need to, to spend time with you to do a spiritual checkup, if you will. But then also, God, just to say, God, we, we, we submit, we commit to one another and to you. Bless now, I pray. As we, as we dismiss church today, God, I pray that you'd go with us. And God, give us the hand of God, the blessing, the favor of God in our families, over our marriages, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Receive that word today, amen. And I know we have widows here and, and we have young people here, but just the word of God, this is God's word. This is what the word of the Lord says for marriages today. Whether you're married or not, may we adhere to this and put people first and not always live for ourselves, amen. Altars are open if you want to spend some time before the altar or if you would like prayer this morning, want to be available to pray for you, pray with you. God bless you. Keep me in prayer next week as I'll be preaching in Nome. And then two weeks we'll finish chapter 7 from 1 Corinthians. Lord bless you.